Hi, and welcome to episode 33 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. My name is Maria Stolger, and my guest today is Aida Temescu, one of Australia's greatest abstract artists. I met Aida in her home in Sydney, parking my car in a one-hour spot, thinking I'd take the risk. But before we knew it, we'd spent over eight hours together, talking almost non-stop, with Aida worrying about me getting a ticket, but me thinking I'd rather get a ticket than lose the flow of our conversation. It was fascinating hearing about her early years growing up in post-war communist Romania and about arriving in Australia knowing nobody, but her work quickly started getting noticed and she's since had over 30 solo shows, including a major survey of her work at the Drill Hall Gallery in 2009. She's also won many awards, including the Sulman, Wynn and Dobell Prizes. But, you know, I got the impression that although she appreciates that recognition, she doesn't see those awards as her greatest achievements. It became clear in our conversation that her primary aim is to convey meaning through her work, and that seems to have been her lifetime pursuit. So at the end of our meeting, I ended up with quite a long recording and was trying to figure out how to present it to you. I decided to edit a shorter and longer version, and this is the shorter interview. And to hear the longer one, just go to YouTube and search Aida Tomescu Talking with Painters. Um, You'll hear a more in-depth conversation there about many of the things we touched on in this episode. I've also put a link to that on the website, talkingwithpainters.com. And you, um, if you go to the website, you'll also see images of the works we talk about and details of her upcoming show at Jensen Gallery in Sydney. I started by asking Aida about her childhood years. Well, I, I was born in Bucharest in Romania. Uh, however, I spent the early years of my childhood mainly en route uh, to my grandmother who lived in a, in a town by the Black Sea called oh. Constance or oh, Constanza. Right, right. Um, How did, well, why was that? My mother had, uh, went back to work, she studied pharmacy um, and after uh, studying, completing her studies, she practiced as a pharmacist for a number of years. Uh, she then had to return back as my father left us repeatedly uh, and our family life was very disruptive. The, the, the life around in the country was uh, equally disruptive uh, and, uh, and the, the region of the world where I was born had very dark skies. Um, and, uh, this is in, because it was post-war? Um, it was post-war. They already went through the war. They, they lost a lot. Uh, they lost everything. They, they owned all their possessions, houses, mm. uh, businesses in the case of my, in case of my mother's family. Mm. Um, I spent very little time of my early years with my mother um, and, and, and a lot with my grandmother. Mm. Uh, by what the was Black your sea. relationship like? with your grandmother? We came close at the end, just at the end, as she was nearing her death. Mm. Um, and, um, and I finally understood um, her calm face, both uh, her and my mother had it, um, and the strength um, and confidence um, that um, in face of such, such sinister, terrible events in their life, they stood calm, strong and confident. What memories do you have of... Um of school and, and say art at school? Or? Well, in, in those days, um, I had no children as company and my, my, my grandmother was a long distance away emotionally. Um, however, the, the only thing that I could, um, the only reachable presence and uh, the only reach, reachable thing, the only um, 
the only presence that I could orient myself through and that was secure against loss uh, was a stack of um, drawing books that somebody or other, some distant uh, family member, left behind. I was told the sculptor that either fled the country or disappeared, uh, whereabouts unknown. And after, after a while of, 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 um, of being attentive to them, I was either allowed or I granted myself permission, something I didn't dare do to start with, to draw on the opposite page of his sketches. And I think maybe the, um, the attentiveness to them resulted in something uh, other than uh, expressing myself as a child. I was trying to observe what I was seeing, and perhaps that's important. Mm-hmm. I was trying to observe and convey in whatever limited way, as I had no vocabulary and no. Um, I have no idea whether the idea of being a painter uh, got cemented into me then with those sketchbooks or earlier. But um, one thing is for sure, I can't recall a time where I didn't want to be a painter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have, there is no precise time, but at the time I was four, uh, I was resol- it was a resolve. Uh, and did you have any reference to anyone else in your family or anyone you modelled yourself after, apart no, from no. those books? Uh, no, no. And also, I don't know that I modelled... Uh, um, I think they, they were captivating. It was captivating that so much can be achieved on a piece of paper with a pencil. It was, it was, uh, it, it was something that completely captivated me and it took... Um, and, uh, and occupied me, Preoccup- occupied and preoccupied me as I kept on thinking about them. Mm. Um, there, there were no artists um, in the family. There were collectors and, and, uh, and in my mother's family, uh, a, a number of uh, uh, relatives collect- used to collect paintings before the system changed. Um, however, my grandmother, in all her economy of words, of praise, but also of criticism, and in... <laughs> And in economy of advice, as I, uh, I grew up roaming the streets, fleeing the house, uh, oh. inventing ways to flee the house via, via the window or up on top of the roof and down. They, um, uh, it was the only Is this switch. when you're like a teenager? No, I think four, five. I was roaming the streets up to into, late into the night. As a young child? As a very young child. And we weren't afraid or... Uh, after the loss of a house... I don't know. Um, I mean, fear. Uh, my greatest fear was being sent away from home. That's already happened. I mean, I don't know. You know, I can't tell you now. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I can't tell you now, uh, you know, uh, how I felt. But I do remember vividly um, um, fleeing, roaming the streets. And this habit continued into the early years of school. At age 10, um, I went to uh, art classes that were run in parallel to secondary schooling. Uh, And um, uh, I don't know how that came, I mean, I know how it came about. Uh, A certain committee or a group of people from the art art school came around my, my, my school to look for fresh blood. Uh, and they would select children between the age of 10 and 16 mm-hmm. uh, and ask them to uh, go to a number of tests that lasted a number of days during a particular week. Passing the little tests or the number of little tests they gave us um, was something I wish for a lot because going to that school was something I wish for more than I have wished for anything else before. Mm. Um, so um, it, for the first time, I was in the place where I felt I belonged and I wanted to be mm. uh, with objects for a still life, with um, 
themes being given to us to come up with a composition based on whatever theme they would give us. They would give us. And one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite days of the week was when they turn off the lights, sit in our chairs, and they turn off the lights and project um, images in black and white using a, a something that used to be called an epidascope. Mm. They would project um, from a book black and white images of, um, of Renaissance paintings. Uh, they would project Titians and Tintorettos and Veronese and um, possibly Cezanne. Uh, and it was from that moment on that I fell in love with Titian. There was something about the power of those works that came through um, in, in the black and white reproduction. I think we would have had very few color. Uh, reproduction and it also uh, that sense of anticipation and of uh, projecting the colors onto the works myself was something I became very interested in. Uh, I, I, I liked repeats of the epidascope session so I could begin to enrich them myself with the color that I oh. thought may have been there or perhaps uh, some of it was described by the teacher and mm. I, I tried to visualize it and, mm. and so they became richer still and stronger still in my memory but they were they, um, when a painting is complete and has got the unity and power it comes across uh, even in a even in a bad reproduction, I think because the trans all the transitions to its final form are still there. Yeah. Uh, they are not lost by yeah. a, by a black and white reproduction. Yeah. So it it was very powerful. Mm. Were you actually painting as well? At yes, school? a lot, a lot, uh, painting a lot because I do remember I was the messier student in the class, <laughs> um, and apparently that also pleased the teacher. So I was really. <laughs> It, it was my favorite, she was my favorite teacher. Uh, yeah. I, and I don't recall either her name or a lot about her. Uh, mm-hmm. But I remember that according to her, I was filled with pain to the elbows. After this second uh, art school that I did as a kid, um, it looked as if uh, getting into uni would be very difficult uh, because I had not... Uh, I had not the training that I needed to get in. You needed to be trained uh, up to a particular level to to pass the admission exams. However, at age 16, this bright, intelligent, young, possibly just 24-year-old art student, he was an art student in second or third year at uni, Mm. uh, walked into my life as a cousin of a friend, of a colleague or boyfriend I had, and uh, said, I'll teach you. I'll give you art classes so you can go to the, through the admission exams, just like that. And what's even more uh, f- fortunate is that he was a brilliant teacher. He mm. was tough, he was uncompromising, he was cruel, he was impossible, <laughs> and he made the best teacher for me. Um, um, what sort of things do you teach you? Um, I remember many things. Cezanne was not his favorite painter, but he taught me to look at Cezanne better than anybody else. Mm. Uh, So he opened the book with the Cezanne card players uh, on his knees, and we sat there for three hours looking at the painting, and he would tell me, why do you think this hat is one fraction of an inch higher than the other hat of the other card player? And why do you think the tablecloth stops here and not there? And then you know that everything is connected, that everything mm. had a reason, that the fact that the angle of the head of one of the card players was there and not one millimeter of a millimeter away from that particular spot had a particular connection mm. in correspondence to some other element in the painting. So he taught you how to look at art in a way? 
Mm. Yeah. He told me how I was drawn to it, but I couldn't understand why. Mm. And though and though he could appreciate the abundant use of paint, I was already you know I was already drawn to paint. He would he would cur- curb that in me through the various projects, but in some ways, without that many words of praise, it was also appreciated uh, through the through the odd comments. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in that he made he made anyway. Don't forget, mm-hmm. I was brought up in a country where in the normal schooling, uh, praise was never there. Criticism was always simply there. Support was rare. And I understand you had a solo show before you left Romania. So that must have been pretty exciting to suddenly have your first solo show. I I never, uh, in those days, and um, and hopefully even now, uh, I don't think I ever chased that. Uh, I always, um, but somehow things came to me when the time seemed to have been right, Mm. if I did the work, which is something I always think was uh, important. I don't know whether so you didn't measure success as an artist through. Oh, that's a very interesting question. That's the most. That's a very beautiful question. No, I never did. And then, as a matter of fact, when I came here, and I and I showed, I was very perplexed by 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 people asking the question. And was the show successful? <laughs> and and I'd say, oh yes, very, because I would, I would be confident in the work. I could never understand. I suppose until I reached Sydney that success was measured in sales because in communist Romania success was never mentioned you know. but did, didn't it mean that wasn't that the way you made a living no um, it was a complicated way of making a living in those countries I wonder how people got by um, so it was never your aim to become a, a famous artist as such it, your aim was to keep painting but not necessarily with my aim was to keep painting and arrive at something that that, and say a lot through painting. Mm. My, my aim was to not just paint, but to paint paintings that mean something, to find meaning through painting. Mm. It, it always is, yeah. Yeah. And um, let's move on to how you came to Australia. So what was it that caused you to leave Romania? I, I, um, everybody applied to, to go on trips and, or to, to leave the country, and nobody, nobody ever got a passport. Um, the last thing they'd give you was a passport. I mean, the, the many things they wouldn't give you. But Did you feel when you were there that, you were, that your life was restricted? Were you, or was that just life? That's how life was. Yeah, I mean, that's the only life I grew up in. Mm. Um, however, you felt the fear. Um, I felt the fear, maybe, maybe either from the grown-ups or, or from the people in the house, or, or it didn't even need to be that from, my, from my going through school alone. You What's know? the fear of? Uh, fear of uh, authority, fear of the regime, fear, fear, like say, I had a passport uh, just weeks before I, left, before I left the country, and it was a beautiful winter day, uh, snow and all. And uh, during the day, plain daylight, this man dressed in a uniform, official uniform of either police or uh, passed me by. And I feared him. Mm. Uh, I can't answer to this day why. But I remember, and though he smiled and said hello and there was nothing to be frightened about, Mm. uh, you feared everything that belonged to authority. And um, and everything um, was just... um, yeah, by the time I left, it was very much a, re- a regime of fear and terror, and everybody wanted to flee. Now, I was I, it because what there was fear that you would your liberty would be taken away from you, or 
I can't, you know, fear is fear, just yeah, like many yeah. other emotions. You don't necessarily know why you have it. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think they gave you a passport? To this day, I'd never know. And in those days, if you're given a passport, most of the time you did not return, though I could have, because nobody would have wanted me back. Nobody, none of my family would have wanted me back. Why? Um, because they thought you were, had a better lot chance a better, of a better life away. Also, you could help people from overseas. You could help people more. You could help your people more from being overseas than you could ever help them. Mm-hmm. I think if anybody ever returned, they were considered a complete failure. However, I was reluctant to leave, and I pretty much left on the last day when my exit visa, my, my visa, my exit visa out of Romania would have expired. Uh, so the, the visa exit visa was a three months duration, and I waited until that last week before it expired to leave the country because, well, for one thing, uh, I didn't want to leave my mother alone um, because I felt she needed somebody else's support. Or she was the main breadwinner, and she said supported me. Um, I felt she needed my. Uh, my support in other ways and um, did she want your support did she want you to stay I don't know that she wanted me to stay I'm sure she needed my support she needed all the support she could get Uh, her life was so hard but um, um, she would never have stopped you from going would she have been the only one sympathetic here that understood had I returned Possibly, yeah, probably, most likely. Mm. Had I returned, should have been the, f- the first one to be joyful at my return. And possibly, the o- and mm. no doubt, the only one. Oh, that's so interesting. That, um, that returning would have been considered a failure in the eyes of most people. In the eyes of pretty much everyone. But then you could also be made an example of, which is the worst of all, which is probably the greatest fear of all in terms of returning, if you wish to. You, um, they would be uh, film directors, actors, well-known actors, well-known people um, that have left, left and returned. And you would see them losing face, dignity, and everything they ever stood for, uh, l- uh, losing everything they had by... by being made an advertisement against the Western world on TV by being told to say what a terrible life it's out there and don't leave. By, by, they were used for, how to put it briefly, they were used for propaganda against the free world. I, I rented a flat in King's Cross that had a huge kitchen with a line of law, uh, and I uh, rented that flat particularly because the kitchen was bigger than the entire flat apartment together, and it was very run down, and I could make a studio out of that kitchen. So at that point, I was only in the country for a few days. I was just trying to, uh, I was getting acquainted to Oxford Art Supply. Uh, <laughs> I was buying ready-made canvases from them that yeah. were on sale. So I was buying the old sizes that had on sale. Yeah. I was getting, using my... So we're talking about, sorry, we haven't actually said it's about 1980, isn't it? It's exactly 1980. Yes. It's early 1980, May 1980. So I arrived here on 10th of May 1980, and all of this sort of happened from the 10th up to, up to the 20th of May 1980. A lot has <laughs> happened. You know, in about 10 or uh, 10 days or two weeks, uh, a lot has happened already. Oh. And then I met a lot of people. My first assignment for myself was to go and check out all the art galleries when I arrived. So I went to a number of them, and in one of my peregrinations during the first week here, I landed in Gallery A, which was showing um, a lot of abstract, contemporary Australian abstract art. It was in a house in Gibbs Street in Paddington. Mm. It had a, a lower ground, mm-hmm. and in the lower ground they had a mixed exhibition of the of the artists, of the gallery artists. That mm. was paintings. Okay. So I looked. 
what struck me though was the fact that they were wild. I thought they were wild. And um, so when, when you I, say wild, you mean wild as in free mm. uh, and uh, and not static. Mm. Um, I didn't know how to take it, where to, you know, I didn't find an anchor for it. I don't know where to anchor it. I don't know uh, how to orient myself against all of that work. I so you weren't excited by it necessarily? Uh, no, I was not, not unexcited. Uh, um, oh, I thought it was courageous. I think I was excited by the fact that it was bold and courageous. Some of the nicest people I met happened to be in Gallery A, who not only took to me, uh, but also invited me to their openings and would spend the time in the corner talking to me. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, this welcoming. Mm, you know, they became my welcoming party. Yeah. Well, they must have recognised in you a true love of art. Well, they, I went in there with a role, I think they may have asked, if they could see, or either I had a roll of works on paper with me, or whether they ask if I go over next time, should I bring something, and I did. And they uh, they asked if they could keep it for a week. Uh, and I did leave them there for a week. I think they sold one or a couple of works, and they were interested in offering a show in a year's time. So it was basically within a month well, of it was, arriving in Australia? It was very important to me um, not to have a show so much, but as to have a community. Uh, mm. I, mean, I, don't, I don't like the word community, having come from a country that's um, mm. uh, with a regime like the one I did. But um, I don't like the word community, but it was important to me to belong to a country that had a serious art galleries, where mm. there was a serious interest in art, and that, had sh and that showed serious art. Mm. And so, did you? So you you went to a gallery A and you saw these works. And did you find that that did that change your direction? Did you start doing more abstract work? No, or? I can't. Work, I mean, uh, it wouldn't have worked if I tried. Yeah, I, I think I I fit um, along the line of painters uh, that Mondrian must have had in mind or had in mind uh, when he said that a painter, uh, even without knowing. Um, is forced, uh, or even, or rather, it goes even without knowing a painter is forced into abstraction. Uh, I fit there, very much there, along mm. those lines of painters because I didn't know it, uh, but I was forced into it, and I wasn't forced into it by the, uh, by any light influence or by anything I saw. I was forced into it by the fact that <laughs> nothing else was doing work until eventually <laughs> it got me there. I was forced into it by the necessity uh, or in the work. Uh, one of the first things that happened, I was trying to reconnect to my earlier subjects, my still lives, my landscapes. So I was in the uh, flat in King's Cross looking out of the window saying, OK, I'll do the street, I'll paint the street. Uh, like I used to look out of the window in Bucharest and paint the roofs or something. And, oh, OK, I'll do this corner of the room or those two objects. But it was completely foreign to me. I no longer, connect, no longer connected to that language. I was standing on a completely new ground and it made no point Oh, well, there was no longer an, a connection between me and and the and my old um, my earlier subject matter, mm. um, and so. Uh, it what, in what way? What do you mean? Because just architecturally, it was different, or no, no, I just was not connected. I couldn't feel any connection to the work I was doing. I couldn't, mm. I couldn't be driven enough by the subject to want to do something with it. Yeah, there was. It would take me nowhere. Uh, they would be just um, attempts 
that mm. would not uh, I would not be um, I would not have the conviction to continue with. So how and, did you find the subject? Uh, well, I I discovered in those first maybe years here. I don't know how long it took for that to for that penny to drop, but um, I discovered during definitely the first two three years here. Uh, I came to some very important realization. Three or four of them, I I counted them at some point. Um, But the most important one was the fact that my subject matter was one thing and the content that was to develop in the work were were two different things. That subject matter and content are not not one and the same thing. Uh, That you can start from subject matter, but however, the content of the work is what grows out of that subject matter. Uh, It's the unity of the painting, takes from the subject matter, but the painting can never, or the drawing can never be reduced just to the one subject it represents. So I began to realize that I needed content in my work, and the content couldn't come from my previous subjects. So can you give me an example of what you mean by the content and the subject matter being different? (laughs) That's a very good question and a difficult one to answer because you really paint and work, either early on or now, for the sake of an encounter with that com- with that content, and it's the the content is the forever elusive part mm. that you can't explain in the one wo- one word or so. Perhaps content co- content is the unity and the relationships between all the elements in the work. Um, content is ultimately the melody that grows into the work from all the elements you are using. Uh, so if it's a figurative work that say uses. Uh, Cezanne, Apples or Mount Saint-Victoire, the content of that work is great, is, a gr- is different than the subject it takes on. It's greater, it's more. Now the other thing that was pretty phenomenal is that you started receiving art awards by the late 1980s. The major ones being the Sulman, the Win, and the Dobell Drawing Prize. Um, and in fact, with the win, you've, you're a ten-time finalist, which is pretty amazing. And I think five times in this Salman. So yes, no, quite a, quite a few times. Yes. I don't think that, yeah. So you're, you were pretty you were pretty much um, pretty uh, set in the Australian art scene from you know quite early on after coming to Australia. So how did it feel um, to be accepted? winning those? Well, well, being accepted. Yes. What? How, how did that feel? Did you feel like you were accepted the more you were recognised? through these awards? I felt I was accepted from the moment I, I, you know, set foot in this country. Um, There's never been a veil between me and Australia. From the moment I spoke to the first Australian on that Greek boat to Crete or some island, uh, to the moment to now, uh, I've never felt I've not belonged here, but I never assumed I'll have success. I never, I never assumed, nor have I taken it for granted. When it came through a sellout show in 1989 at Coventry Gallery, it put so much fear in my bones that I had to. Um, that actually set my work in a new direction. That was really? much more satisfying. When you say well, fear, I, what do you? What, what, uh, well, what for fear? one thing, I had to question whether I was becoming just a. A, a painter of color, pretty painter. Was I just this painter that was just making paintings to sell? Um, painting is very important to me. Um, so, in a way, I don't want success. to use it. I don't want to use it. It's not there to be used, mm-hmm. um, and um, it's not. It's not there to be. So, I want to do something with it that would add 
something through painting. And I know from all the experience I've had with, with working for all those years, I know that painting is capable of it. It's pa painting is capable of saying something in a visual language that no other art can say that way. And it can say it without words. Mm. Um, and it can have the power of entire symphonies. Uh, uh, in this visual language, I know it can. Um, but why would it, why would having a sellout show negate that power? No, it wouldn't. But you would you but I would question whether a sellout show means that um, was the work serious enough. Mm. It was if it was so easily accepted. I wanted to move on actually to talk about color. Because that, because those earlier works in particular, the well, the wind painting called Piatra was it was a very grey, very textured painting, um, and there were, and in those those years there there were you had done a lot of works like that, but then you started using a lot more vibrant colours after that and a lot, and lighter colours as well, um, and certainly recently in some of your wind finalist paintings they're very very light, very very colourful. Um, and you've said some really interesting things about colour. Oh, tell me, remind me. <laughs> well, first of all, you, in particular, you refer to it as a found colour. Ah, yes. Can you uh, tell me a bit about what you mean about that? Yes. Um, yes, uh, they start with any number of things and any number of colours. And eventually, uh, what I mean by found colour is I, I excavate a lot. Uh, and, and use a lot of the previous layers. And as I scrape back into the ground, mm -hmm. and, you know, excavating might be an easier way to explain it, say I excavate back into the ground, the previous layers of paint mix with the new layers of paint, and the previous colours mix mm -hmm. with the new colours and begin creating their own colour. That's why I call it found colour. It is definitely found, because it's found from all the layers and all the history of the painting. As I apply... A new, any new color or a color, um, I don't put it on a dry ground. Uh, I automatically involve or constantly involve, uh, I constantly communicate, constantly communicates to the, to the other layers. Mm. Um, and as it does so, it mixes with the other layers. And is and that creates, a deliberate, have you got a, a, a pretty good idea what's going to happen. The best is, uh, no, you couldn't possibly measure or calculate that in advance in terms of, you could, you could once you begin one the work, once the work is throwing a direction at me. You know, to begin with, I won't, um, I don't. To begin with, I, I, I start from a number of sources, from a number of things, and I don't know what is going to gel to that surface. It's a bit, you know, I, I, it can start from f uh, fragments of things. I think painting looks back into the world, so, or into something I've read, or into a line from a poem. Uh, and, and any number of uh, mat uh, material can, um, can be a source for one work. However, I can use fragments or pull fragments or, or, or different, um, uh, different material and, and, and uh, put it all onto the same canvas. Mm. And, um, and some would just die out, uh, and some will, will just catch fire on that surface, will just connect to that surface. And from the ones to, that connect to that surface, um, the ones that connect to that surface uh, begin to throw me a link, a thread, into other possibilities. Mm. So it begins, uh, you know, writers say that uh, character changed 
mm-hmm. right in the middle of the story. It changed for them, and there was no way they could mm-hmm. alter the life of that character because the, the book changed that character for them. It's the same, yeah. I find, with painting. So you begin, I can begin and I can have a very good idea, but the painting can change that, that course for me. And you know when it does so because it's, it's got a very clear and direct current and you've become, you are fully aware of it. You are fully conscious of it. It's not yet got the resolution, but when something sticks to that surface, when, it's, when, when you're using something or you're working with something that the surface needs and wants, uh, you are very aware of it. Uh, there is no doubt about it, but you still don't know the end. But you still right, so it's a, it's your, you're responding with each step. Exactly, it's a step-by-step process. You are, it's a yes. You are, you. It's you don't, you're not, you don't want to sec. It's never a good idea to try to uh, overthink or uh, or overguess, mm. do too much guesswork with the painting. However, you guess it step by step, and that's part of its joy, really, because mm. that's why it's discovery. That's what you want to discover. However, at the end, from all of those things, it is never arbitrary. You know, at the end, when you stop, you know. You couldn't have done any more. You couldn't have taken it anywhere else. Mm. It is the only way it could have gone. Uh, you, so up to that point, you can have choices, but there is a point in the story where the paint, where you no longer have the choice. You need to see the thread through. Can we talk about texture in your paintings? Because I think this is a very important part of your work, and um, in particular in this in your upcoming show at Jensen Gallery. Uh, there are some amazing works where, that you've created which have got such amazing texture in them. There's, we were talking, I was talking to you earlier about the group of four smaller works which are called Angels and Bed 1 to 4 and you were saying that, that they, start, they started off your, the cycle of these works and, and I thought they were, that they were a great example of showing the different textures and because in some areas you can see the the linen coming through it is so sort of thin and then in other areas it looks like almost that the paint is like it looks like red earth you know it's so textured texture is inherent to all paintings so i think even when you don't pick up on it in a painting that uh, that in a way may not be obvious it's always there so i'm never con- consciously chasing it however i'm very glad that you mentioned the texture of the linen because uh, because if Ever I was conscious of anything would be more um, what it's absent in, in terms of the thickness of paint. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I. Uh, but if you if you see it together as an integrated part together with the blank areas of the linen that shows through. Uh, yes, I, I was trying to preserve as much as I could of the ground and of the linen uh, in the series. I, I didn't try to make. Um, an image with all those different textures. I was trying to find a reason for doing the new work. I see. So I I was wondering whether some of those those, uh, areas of paint actually had something added to them because they seemed so textured. Ah, no, no, no. I never add anything to the paint because my intention was never to paint thick. Um, The reason I I need... um, I need the quantity of paint is to construct with it. I mean, I, I need to go as, uh, because if they take me such a long time, um, I construct and I remove, and I remove and I remove, but still a lot is left. And so it, what is left and begins to form the characters in my painting, 
I can't remove. If I could do it just with thin paint, I would. So I'm not after texture. Texture is just is just it's a byproduct. A, yes, very much so. It's important because it carries a lot of the character of the painting. Now, uh, to answer your question, uh, because it's very important, I don't mix anything with the paint. But when I scrape back into the previous layer of the paint, the under layers have different levels of drying paint in them, and as they mix with my fresher paint, they they get that granular grittiness. Oh. Yeah. And so that, but that is done not so I get the granular look. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not chasing that look, but uh, which would be interesting. Not that I get the granular look, but it's done in order to construct that area. Well, I wanted to talk to you about something we we talked about um, before we turned on the recorder, and that is about uh, achieving that look of spontaneity. I wanted to talk about a painting in particular, which was your Win Prize finalist painting in 2015, which was called Bribey. Yeah. And I think, and that was a, a painting which was sort of inspired by, well, for want of a better word, inspired by uh, uh, Bribey Island, which is where Ian Fairweather, I understand, lived and worked. And you said in relation to that that you wanted to arrive at a painting that looks as if it just landed on the canvas where it canvas where it always belonged and it, it, it's a beautiful very light uh, predominantly blue painting with a large sort of area of blue and with um, other sort of marks and with a lot of, with a lot of the linen showing through that's yeah. right um, Bribey was very promising from the start it is one of those paintings uh, some paintings just give you a glimpse of where they want to go and you follow through and um, and you never quite lose that initial feel they had. And this is one of them. It, it had some clarity in it from the moment my films of yellow paint in, in, the, in the background uh, hit the, the canvas. By the time I second or third uh, elements began to appear in the, on the canvas, um, everything felt felt right for it to happen. However, it was still a delayed process because the blue area that was running through the middle mm. uh, stayed in its dark... Uh, uh, I mean, you're looking at the image now, but... Mm. Um, and I left it. It was nearly finished. However, I didn't bring out enough form in it. And so then I began to rework the middle area of the lighter blue again and again and again to lift that space more and more and more. And at some point I lifted it, I also dissolved it, so it went flatter, it grew out more, it went flatter, it grew out more, so I stayed for quite a long time uh, on that. As that began to grow more form in it, more presence in it, that it was beginning to come more forward, mm. to lift more of the canvas, mm. then the upper section of the canvas, uh, of the linen, receded, no longer had the power it mm. had before the, the fullness of blue started to emerge. So therefore I started to begin to work passages of the upper section to keep up with the form that was emerging 
in the lower section. So really, you you want to grow with all the you know like an orchestra going with all the instruments at once. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I began to repaint some of the areas of blue in the upper section because they began to feel flatter mm. by comparison to the form that was, that was growing out of the lighter blue. So by the time I got to the lower section of the blue, I then began to work with um, very economically with very little paint. Uh, for somebody who uses a lot of paint, sometimes I can put a patch of blue and a patch of white in the palm of my hand and I can finish a painting with a few centimeters of paint. Oh, really? That's all, a big painting. Yeah. Well, because it's nearly there, all it needs is that fine tuning and it is at that point that you you have to tune into the surface and can't miss it. And so form can be that delicate in mm. that sense. Do you find that when you work on a few paintings at the same time that that increases your um, ability to see uh, what the painting needs? Yeah, because you paint on one, uh, on each one at a time, and then you turn away from it and concentrate hundred percent on another. You don't go from one to another. Yeah, mm -hmm. you just concentrate fully on one, then either turn it face to the wall, or leave it there, then take into your working position a different one and so on, um, and then concentrate on it, uh, maybe for longer periods of time. Yes, it definitely uh, helps. And the other thing that it does, it helps you not concentrate on a product or the show because uh, the new image may throw something at you that might tell you that the previous ones uh, you left in a particular stage at a particular time, in a particular moment on that road. Um, it may, the following painting may teach you something that the previous painting needed, that you can return back mm. to it. So in a way, it's all connected, it's all related. I like working in cycles of works, mm. not one finished, one finished. Mm. Uh, anyway, uh, more importantly, I wouldn't have the energy. Uh, so when I begin to work, I need to generate energy in the studio, and often drawing allowed me to do so. Mm. Then for that, and in order to generate energy, sometimes reading and, and poetry can help me generate that energy because it gives me the... Uh, it gives me the conviction to go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So I want to do it, and so. Um, so you might do that during the day at some point. You have a break, and then you will say refer to some literature or poetry. Oh uh, no! Uh, I could. I could. It could be just reading on the train on the way to the studio. Mm. And sometimes I delay because I know the effort that's needed of me when I arrive in the studio. Sometimes I delay arriving, and <laughs> I linger around the coffee shop with the book. <laughs> A while longer, yeah, and, uh, and and that happens often before before the more intense works so or when I have to take a very serious decision about something. What would be I a hold back. What would be a serious decision? Scraping something off that's nearly there, nearly good, but it's not there yet. Scraping something off entirely, yet it's there, it's there, and it it could nearly go, but it's not yet there, and it's gone on for so long. So if you've gone on so far, why not make it the best? So rather than try and fix it, you'll get rid of it. Sometimes, Sometimes you can't fix. You know, the, the blue painting you mentioned, bribing, it wasn't a matter of fixing, it was a matter of lifting it. Everything was there. But sometimes, especially when you deal with my later series where they're all those elements that are trying to dance and find an accord between, between themselves and find a relationship between themselves, uh, removing it may get you... May, may, may get me closer to a resolution mm. than not because it's too much it's too much going on I dealt with a lot of elements you know uh, it just reminds me a proposal of landscape painting that uh, going back to Cezanne when Cezanne and Pizarro were working in the landscape and the passerby asked them something about their painting they said oh but we don't paint this we don't paint the landscape we make accords 
so our pain, the, their painting was the relationship between accords. I think it's a beautiful way of saying it. Painting is the relationship between all the elements in the work. And the more disparate and complex the elements are, the more complex the challenge to bring them together or mm. challenging the, the resolution. Do you find that um, it's more difficult to work on one of your larger works? So, for example, you've got Under the Iron of the Moon, which is a large diptych, which is about three metres wide and 180 centimetres high. Is that going to be a more complex and difficult work than, say, the smaller angel and angels? I wish I could say yes, because, you know, sure, the big paintings have been common, and just the sheer energy I need to work through them and, and, and physically scrape off and, you know, escalate to them and as I find my colour and my... Uh, but the small works have not proven to be easy at all. Yes, <laughs> painting can pack so much in its small dimension, in small dimensions can just pack so much and you want it to. Mm. Because, uh, I mean, the way I was working, the last, the last series of works is a quintet, just five small, and I visualised them for a long time. I visualised a group of white paintings for a long time. Mm. Uh, ever since... Yes, they're five, they're five quite light-coloured paintings, aren't yes, they? Yes, they started as drawings. And I thought for a while they would be drawn like drawings on canvas. Um, I mean, it definitely, they did definitely, they could have gone into the direction of the angels and bed, but there was no, I mean, what was the point of a repeat, yeah? Mm. Uh, so obviously they need to find their own language, their, their own universe, their own inner life. Actually, okay, maybe best put, paintings have an inner life. And I think form is that inner life. And to find their inner life, I layer and I layer, layer uh, drawing and I layer paint. And at some point, they were very silver. There is a lot of silver paint in them, a lot of red paint in them. So they're quite rich in color, and some of it emerges around the edges. And so I don't know when we see them in the exhibition, I'll see just how much color emerges. I'm looking forward to actually seeing those in the flesh. I've only seen photos, so yeah, they have been, they've been quite heavily worked, and for the past two months, I've been on them day in day out. And <laughs> in order you, to I see, mean, are, they, are they dry? Uh, well, it's, we had good weather for the drying, which is lucky. <laughs> but uh, there was there was once when a, when a painting, when one of when a show was going to Heidi, uh, yeah, of the yeah. museum there in 1997, um, when I was still painting on a painting when the truck came to collect them, and they had to wait. The guys, there were two <laughs> guys, you know, were very very amused by me still painting on that painting, and they said, no, no, don't. Rush will give you a lot, a lot of time. So they were watching me and having great fun. However, I couldn't have cared less who was watching me. I was so. And anyway, at some point or other, I stopped and I thought, oh, I could start all over again, but I think this does it. And I told them, take it. And they said, are you sure? And I said, take it. And they did it, it, I think, it's interesting, it became such a reproduced painting and such a beloved painting at Heidi and everywhere else, but it took that much out, it took the last drop, and sometimes they ask for that, and sometimes they do ask for that. Why? Why? Maybe I would love somebody to tell me someday why yeah. they ask you till the last drop, but some do. Do you use brushes with the smaller works, or do you, do you mostly? Both, both. And in a way, interesting. You should ask that because I was thinking that because uh, I have a particular size scrapers, you know, that I use for the big and for the small. And I got used to that scraper. And I don't want to use a flimsy little palette knife for the smaller works. I mean, I need, I need the, I need to be able to apply paint with a particular, uh, with a particular kind of strength, maybe, or with, or I'm used to that. I don't know. I don't think I could do it with, with a flimsy little 
very flexible paradigm. Mm-hmm. But interestingly enough, uh, and through the 90s, you reminded me, I used to use, to do everything with one brush. The, you know, that was a pointed brush, but it's also a big brush. So I, I could do broad marks and very tiny marks all with the one brush. And at that time, I was reading something about Morandi, that he had a favorite one or two brushes, and he just used them. Just now, I could understand that. You can do a lot with the one uh, source, with the one um, implement. Yeah. yeah. You can make it work in any way. Do you find that you use a large scraper for your larger works, just the one scraper? I have a favourite scraper, I must say. <laughs> yeah, I think I think a lot of artists are like that. They like the... the, the oh. <laughs> you always go for that one implement each time, you know. Yes, oh, I'm delighted to hear there are others like that because, <laughs> because yeah, no, no, you just... you. Uh, well, you see, there are certain things that can't change in your life that must remain. You know, it's like um, you can't change everything. You change everything on that surface. You can't change everything you're working with, it will be too much change, No, that's right. So you need to, yeah, to anchor yourself in something. Yeah. Often you have paintings, but you don't yet have a show. You have any number of paintings. You can have all the paintings you need in terms of number for the show, but you don't feel you have the show because the link between all those disparate images hasn't yet happened. And sometimes it happens. And my experience has been that it happens for me at the end. I do the link at the end. I have five, five paintings or seven paintings mm-hmm. and I'm uh, well, talking to friends saying, oh, my show, my show. And they say, but you have the work. And I say, I haven't got the show. Uh, and uh, and they the can never be? understand. But and sometimes people who know a lot about painting can never understand. Link would be the painting that links all of these parallel elements together that make them exist in an environment where, you know, if you see one painting, it's... it's is enough in itself. It, it has all of the differences and in it. But when you begin to see four or five paintings that deal with a lot of, um, I don't want to call it drama, but that had to um, that have to deal with so much intensity, mm. then you need uh, something to lift the spirit of that show up a bit. Uh, I mean, a bit or a lot. And uh, oh, so, then you think the whiter paintings did that? I hope they will. Yeah. I think I'll certainly need them in the show. Yeah. And you want them to connect like a chain connects. I was just wondering um, what your routine is like. Like, uh, do, you, do you find that you, you have sort of regular hours of, with the studio? Do you, do you have... Oh, yes, yes. Uh, routine is vital to me. Uh, um, I wish I was an earlier starter. You know, I, I'm, I like staying up at night and, uh, uh, you know, I find the late... The, the late hours at night, uh, very reassuring, either for reading or uh, pottering around the house or just... Mm. Um, but um, having said that, um, when, when the painting reaches a stage when it needs me and when it, begin, when it begins to show me a clarity of direction, I know I have some kind of thread to go with. I have at least half image there, half of something that's trying to be born there. Um, then I need to go seven days a week. And to, uh, well, I need to, you know, six uh, comes close. If I take, uh, if I take one day off, I know it. If I take two days off, the painting knows it, yeah? And so I, I can't afford to let it know it. And so, <laughs> so I, 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 I try to be... Um, what, because you have to, if you, you don't want to lose that thread. You, you, one, you don't lose the thread. Sometimes it's good to stay a day away. It might be quite beneficial, but staying too many days away, the paint might be get either too dry or not. Or it could be that it's just at the right stage where it needs 
very minimal changes in order to come together. And for one thing, uh, you may want to stay away because you don't want to face the day when it comes together because it always needs giving something up. It always requests of you a sacrifice of giving something up. But um, What do you mean? Um, in order to get a, a painting that's better or greater than what you have, you often have to let go of some of the most beautiful passages in the painting. Uh, and that's okay, because what you, end at the, what you end up with at the end is a, a powerful work, a meaningful work, and it has to be done. Uh, my routine is pretty simple. Uh, I need my espressos in the morning or macchiatos. Um, I, I need uh, to take the train. I need a book in my bag. I need an apple or two in my bag. Um, and uh, and then the work day begins. Yes. I think you asked me about the studio at some point. Whether you know what kind of studio I want. I was brought up in a country where you may do is what you had and what you're given. Um, and so I never had the comfort of the studio as I wanted it. It would be nice one day. Uh, so I've always either struggled more, struggled less with spaces that had a certain difficulty about them, uh, but you make them work. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes you concentrate better. I remember when I had st students, you know, in mm -hmm. uh, certain situations in the studio weren't very good. I used to remind them that you can come up with the best work in, in, um, in places, uh, in very uncomfortable places, because they help you concentrate harder. Yeah. So uh, pretty much you can do work where you can concentrate. So what I can't do is, is a disruption, a lot of disruption to the day, I can't, or disruption to the week. I like long weeks and long months where there is no disruption, nothing pulling on me, nothing mm. asking or demanding things of me. So I normally just pick out the envelope of the bills from the mail and nothing else, uh, so that I'm not late with that at least, otherwise that would create a whole set of new complications. Um, and try Someone to make said, it to simplify my life. It's, I pretty much simplify my life, uh, just simplify it altogether. Does that uh, mean you would go for days without sort of socialising? Oh, absolutely. Weeks, months, six months longer. Uh, well, some of my best friends are the ones that understand that. So uh, we pick up the other day, I saw a friend that I've not seen since Christmas Day, but it didn't seem to matter. <laughs> so that, so you don't ever feel lonely or disconnected? No, no, it's interesting. No, uh, no. And, and uh, it's a question that happens often, you know, whether you feel lonely in the studio when you paint. Goodness. Uh, no, I don't know. You know, you're talking to those paintings, I guess. Uh, um, no, mm. no that don't, you don't feel at all, if anything, mm. uh, you're forever surrounded by a lot of presences, because they, they come to life, and it's not a crazy thing to say, it's um, there are certain things that, that need you, and that need is greater than yours. Mm. So you can't have needs mm. uh, of loneliness or neediness for something or other. Um, all mm. you need is that you kind of uh, stand up right enough and have the strength enough to continue. Um, another thing I wanted to talk to you about was that um, you taught um, at the National Art School for 20 years. I mean, you, you finished teaching there in about 10 years ago. And two of my guests have already mentioned you in a couple of episodes, John Bokor and, and Lucy Cullerton. They both mentioned things that they still remember that you taught them. And I'm sure there are hundreds of ex-students who are probably experiencing the same thing of having your words ringing in their ears while they're at their easel. 
Do you have any advice for any students who are starting out? Waste painting, you are continuously in a space of uncertainties. What mm. you begin to develop is not more skill. You could develop, you do develop skill at all as well, but um, you can't rely on skill as much. However, uh, being in that space of uncertainties is important because it's the space where you constantly learn. Mm. And uh, and I um, well and perhaps one other is that when prospects um, go out the window and they dwindle into nothing, uh, there is a moment of great freedom uh, when when a new voice, a new language can form in the work. So often when everything is gone, uh, when you feel you reach the bottom, um, that's uh, often one of the most valuable things painting can give you because it can give you immense freedom, the one of starting again. Yeah, I think, um, uh, yeah, and, and the only thing, you know, to still be said and, and um, that any painting that is lost is never really lost. It just becomes a training ground for other work and often becomes the painting that teaches them the most. And so therefore, how could that be a loss to them? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, there's such, that's such great advice, Aida. Well, Aida, thank you so much. It's been, such, it's been so wonderful meeting you and I'm really looking forward to seeing all those wonderful works hanging up in your show in the next couple of weeks. The pleasure was all mine because of your questions. I thank you very much for the very insightful questions. And some of them gave me food for thought. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Aida Tomescu. Her show, Under the Iron of the Moon, opens at Jensen Gallery in Paddington on 19 October 2017, a few days after this episode goes online. I'll also be posting a video of Aida in her studio soon and I'll keep you posted on social media about that. And, of course, you can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter where I'll keep you posted about upcoming guests and events. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes and the YouTube channel on YouTube. Thanks also to all of you um, commenting on social media and also um, for your uh, reviews on iTunes and Facebook. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. Uh, Sartre said it, Jean-Paul Sartre said it quite beautifully when he said paintings don't mean anything but they have meaning. They must have meaning. It's just not one meaning alone. The meaning resides in the multiplicity of, of meanings which gives the painting its depth. So it, it will, they will always have a multiplicity of meanings. <laughs>